Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this week's episode, we revisit the topic of wallets with Julien Nice, co-founder of Argent. We look at how Argent aims to rethink existing models for wallet security, backups, and recovery. We explore the wallet landscape over history and the interfaces we use for the decentralized web, as well as their move to L2s and specifically to ZK rollups. But before we kick off, if you're looking to jump into ZK professionally, I want to remind you to head over to the ZK Jobs Board to find job posts from some of the top teams working in ZK. Find the project or team you want to work with next. I also encourage teams who are looking to hire to post on the Jobs Board. You have teams like Alio, EF, Anoma, and Mina there already. Be sure to add your jobs as well. If you're not quite ready to get a job in ZK, but you still want to jump in, check out the ZK podcast link tree that we've put together. There you can find a full list of channels that we have and hopefully a way for you to jump in. I've added the link to both of these in the show notes. Now, Tanya, the podcast producer, will tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon Hermes. The Polygon Hermes ZK rollup is a layer two built on top of Ethereum that solves its scalability through mass transfer processing rolled into a single transaction. Zero knowledge proofs are used to present and publicly record the validity and correctness of the rolled transfers processed on the Ethereum blockchain. By storing just the proof and the compressed data of a batch of transfers, the efficiency and the throughput of the network is multiplied. Visit polygon.technology to learn more about Polygon Hermes and other Polygon solutions. So thank you again, Polygon Hermes. Now here is Anna's interview with Argent X Wallet. Today, I'm here with Julian Nize, co-founder of Argent. We're going to be exploring Argent as a project, but also dive back into the topic of wallets. So yeah, welcome to the show, Julien. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I want to understand a little bit uh, about the origin story of Argent. Where did the idea for it come? When did it start? Yeah, what was your beginning? Yeah, so about four years ago with my two co-founders, Itamar and Gerald, we, we got really excited about you know the entire blockchain and, and Web3 spaces. And so we really wanted to start building something in that ecosystem. So we started looking at you know applications, verticals, uh, the protocols, and we kind of realized there was a, a big gap. There were people building applications, which were quite exciting already at that time. And then there were people building and working at the protocol level. But we, we rapidly identified there was a huge gap between the two because users you know, will not speak directly to the protocol. They want to come for an application, but you need to make that link between users and applications. And so we rapidly identified that, that gap uh, on you know, the products and the stuff people were building at that point, which you know, today we call wallets. And we really felt that there was a a missing piece on the ecosystem. There was, of course, some wallet at that time, but I would say on the spectrum of wallets, they were basically on opposite side of the wallet. You would have like, you know, like hardware wallets, for example, a wallet based on on seed phrase, which were, you know, providing self-custody, which is one of the key properties of the blockchain, but they were very hard to use. And, uh, and we still think they are very hard to use. And so they work for like hardcore early users, people, you know, cryptographic or math background or computer science background, but 
I mean, it, it seemed clear for us that this would not work for mainstream users. And we came with the idea to build a product for, for real users. Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, you had wallets like Coinbase, our centralized exchange, which who did provide great user experience, but of course, uh, you were losing the self-custody aspect. And so we really felt that there were these two opposite parts of the spectrum, and we really felt that we could actually build something that would you know, combine the best of both worlds. That means building a wallet that's 100% non-custodial, but that which can actually be used by, by real users and, and mainstream users. And, and so that's why we decided to start working on Argent. When you were first starting this, was MetaMask already a thing? Like, was that like a wallet design that you were already kind of observing or were you before that? It's a good question. To be to be honest, I don't remember. The big thing at that point, I think in terms of software wallet, was actually MyEther wallet. Ah, uh, yeah. I think at that time, people and we started using either MyEther wallet, or actually I started using Mist. So, I mean, I think our early days in, in terms of, you know, non-custodial wallet, there was, I think, MyEther wallet, there was Mist from the Ethereum Foundation, and then you had Ledger and, and Treasure. Maybe MetaMask was already there, but it probably was not as big as, I mean, certainly not as big as it was today. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, these are, at least these are the four that I remember for, for that time. That was like, you know, mid-2017. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when MetaMask kind of came to the forefront that we were all... Me too. I think it, it was still there. It's actually interesting because the other day I read the book from Laura Sheen. Yeah, me too. Know, on, on, on the crypto <laughs> like, I just finished it. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that, that surprised me is that nowhere is MetaMask mentioned. All these ICO craze is only my Ether wallet. And actually MetaMask is nowhere to be mentioned on, on the book, which made me actually question myself, was MetaMask already around at that time? No, I still don't know. Okay. Yeah. I did, I did have Dan Finley on many, many years ago in 2018. So for sure it existed by then, but I don't know about when exactly they launched. So, but Argent, as a, when it first started, when you first had this idea around it, did you ever have that idea of actually having it as a Chrome extension purely? Or was it always like, I actually want to hear what it's developed into, but yeah, yeah what was like, what was that first iteration of a, an easier to use wallet? So, my two co-founders, Gerald and Itama, they came from a, I mean, before Arjun, they built a product called Peak, which was a, a mobile application for brain training. So they really come from a consumer world and they knew extremely well how to build, you know, mobile applications. And so I think it was part of their DNA to start on mobile, but we also felt that it makes sense. I think if you look at the neo banks trends and, and bank application in general, they all move to mobile. And I think mm -hmm. it's a natural trend that, you know, your mobile phone becomes your control center. So for us, it was kind of obvious that the future of, of, of wallet, if you see your wallet as your gateway to the blockchain world, you know, managing your assets, connecting to dApps, it felt natural to, to build that on mobile. Uh, and so actually we started on mobile from day one. We, we never really questioned that. That was, for us, it was a no brainer that, you know, a great wallet experience would have to be mobile. Was there any other mobile? I mean, I, I think there was like Trust Wallet or something around then. I think they started probably around the same time as we did. I think Trust Wallet was, yeah, was probably around the same time. I think there was EM Token, which started somewhere in 2018 as well, even though they all started as, you know, like typical wallet where managing a seed phrase and, and you, you know, you, you need to, to control your and, and manage your private keys. So completely different model than us. But in terms of mobile wallet, I think, yes, probably Trust Token was starting I think there was another wallet that was actually acquired by 
Coinbase, I, I don't remember. Mm. There were there were a few teams starting to explore, I think, I think mobile wallets. Uh, but yes. Did you decide to do the wallet product because like I wonder if you had a similar experience to to the one I had when I first joined the space where like because the tech, the protocol tech was so very, very deep that if you wanted to create that more consumer facing thing, there weren't like there weren't that many things you could do. And I remember like wallets were something that were a little bit more understandable. I, in the end, did a podcast like I did something totally different because I, you know, really could not envision starting a new venture, like starting a new product at that time. But yeah, like, do you feel that in a way that's where you started because of just that density? Like, do, or could your team have actually worked on a protocol level thing? No, no, it's it's 100% correct. I mean, we wanted to build something for, for users, consumers. Yeah. So we didn't want to build something at the protocol level. And that's why we started looking at application and realized that, you know, without a wallet, there would be no applications. So we, we felt that we first needed to crack, you know, the wallet, the gateway to that world before starting to, to try to crack application and find, you know, use cases of the blockchain. So for us, it was natural that someone needed to build a good wallet if you mm -hmm. wanted the ecosystem to develop. And we kind of felt that, you know, we that's something that we could build. So yeah, 100%. What were you doing before this? Was this your first blockchain thing or had you been kind of in the space before? No, that for me, I mean, for the three of us, we were completely new to the space. And in a sense, I think that was, you know, something positive mm. because when you arrive with a fresh mind, actually you, you question what people believe are, you know, stuff that are true. I mean, there's a the lot of things, things that a lot of postulate, yeah. exactly. That's how it should be and nobody questioned it. Yeah, yeah. And when you come with a fresh mind, I think you are in the right position to say, actually, that does not make sense. Uh, and, and so I think for us, it was actually a good thing that, that you know, we were completely new. And that's why we started working on smart contract wallets. Even though at that time, everybody felt that, you know, wallet, not your keys, not your coin. You need mm -hmm. to have your seed phrase. And and because we were fresh, I mean, we had, the, I think, the freedom to 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 realize that, you know, this will never scale. And so we need something better. And even if people believe at that point that smart contract wallet would never work for us, it, you know, it was obvious and, and we felt that's something that we, we could tackle. So being completely fresh and, and new in a space, I think it's something that's very good. And actually today, that's something that I try to remind myself because we've been here for four years, which is quite a lot in this ecosystem. And I think we've lost some, some of that naivety sometimes. So it's important to, Again, try to be naive, try to question, you know, the assumption and the things that you believe are true to see if you can, you know, come with a with a different angle on perspective. Uh, but to answer your question, so before doing that, my two co-founders, they were working on that, as, as I said, that mobile application called Peak, uh, which they, they sold uh, a year before we started Argent. And me, I was actually working for a company doing M2M and IoT. Oh. So I was working for a startup in Silicon Valley, but I was, you know, working remote. Uh, and they were one of the first platforms for M2M and IoT, uh, a company called M2MI. Uh, and so for them, I was actually basically leading the backend. So that, I did that for three years. Before that, I started my own uh, startup in collaboration with the university. So to to go a bit further, I have a background in quantum information and quantum computation. So I did a PhD in that field and then a postdoc. And so I actually came back to Belgium to try to, to, to valorize some of the IP that we had developed in the lab. So we created a, a startup called SQR Technologies, which was building a quantum random number generators. So wow. that was my first 
my first startup, very exciting, probably 10 years too early. Oh. We never managed to sell a single appliance, but we did build <laughs> a lot of IP that, that we sold to, to a main competitor. So I think that was a great experience in terms of, you know, of the startup world and then going from a like theoretical physicist researcher to being an entrepreneur. I think that was a, you know, a great experience. I really like what you just said, though, about having that fresh perspective. And I, I feel like I've been guilty of this kind of like new people are joining and they're asking questions or they're suggesting things. You're like, no, 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 that's not how it works here. But actually, <laughs> it's very good to stay fresh and not fall into that trap of thinking, you know, better because it changes so fast. Yeah, I think we're all guilty of that, you know, from time to time. It's normal when you, I think there's some, some studies that show that when you become an expert, actually, it, it's become more and more complicated to, you know, to think differently and think outside of the box because that expertise actually makes your mind more rigid in a sense. Interesting. Which I, I think is, is quite interesting, yeah. You did just mention a smart contract wallet, and maybe we should define, like, was that what Argent was right off the bat? Was that the sort of initial pitch? And I am curious what that means. Yes. So that was 100% the initial pitch. So actually, when I said with my two co-founders, we wanted to build something and we realized there was a gap with wallets. Actually, we did something which is very cliche, but we locked ourselves in a room for two, two days and trying to brainstorm you know, what kind of product we could do. So we had post-its, we had markers, like <laughs> everything you would see in a, in a silly you know, marketing or brainstorming book. But actually, we, we listed some of the stuff. And I mean, most of the stuff that we listed are still what Arjun is today. So, for example, people were talking about ease 2 and you know, the possibility to, to stake your funds and realize that in a sense, that could work as, as a savings account. Like you could lock your ETH and actually have an interest on, on top of it. So like four years ago, we said, okay, actually we could build like some kind of a savings account. Then there were like the beginning of, of ENS and we felt like ENS is like email, it's like an identity. So actually, you know, we could give a, 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 like a user-friendly name to, to, to people's address instead of providing, you know, hexadecimal strings. So we can do something like, like IBAN is to your credit card or email is, is to your, you know, profile online. Uh, and so we had all these ideas combining together. And one of these ideas was how, or this thing that we wanted to solve is how can we get rid of seed phrases? I mean, for us, again, coming with this fresh mind, I think for, for 30 or 40 years, we tried to convince people on Web2 to actually not write the password on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And then you come to this new financial internet and the first thing you ask is write your password <laughs> on a piece of paper, but not one time. Write it five times that you put in five different locations. So if something goes wrong, you know, you, I know. you can still recover your fund. I mean, it's so if you rough. Have a little bit of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have a little bit of security background, you realize that this makes no sense. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, that's actually what we need to crack. That's the first friction point for users. If we are building a wallet, we need to get rid of these seed phrases. One solution is to be custodial, but we don't want to do that. So what can we do? And we rapidly identify that smart contract, you know, was the solution. Because if your account is not your, is not your key, but is actually a smart contract, you can start building some of these security flows or some of these, you know, primitives into the account itself. And so we were, you know, considering like modern banks. In a bank, you have a credit card, which is actually the remote control to your account. If you lose that credit card, you call your bank, you ask it to freeze it and, and to send you a new one. And so we're thinking that's actually a mental model that people understand. Can we build something similar, but in a, in a like truly non-custodial way? And so, of course, smart contract was the solution. And that's why we started working on what people call today social recovery. 
but it's exactly the same flow that you have with your bank and your credit card, except that you don't need to trust or rely on the bank. You choose who's acting as, as your bank. And these are what we've called, you know, these guardians on Arjun. And mm. these guardians, yeah, it can be your bank, but it can be yourself with a hardware wallet. It can be three of your friends. It can be a friend, a hardware wallet, and, you know, a, a trusted entity. And all these ideas were actually there from the early days. But for us, what was pretty clear is that if we wanted to, to move away from these seed phrase paradigm, we needed to use smart contract. And so that's why we started working on, on smart contract wallet. And so the seed phrase was one of the first thing that we wanted to crack. The second one was the gas. Uh, because again, when we started you know, on the blockchain, having to understand gas, to understand what a transaction fee is, setting the core gas, we, all, we felt that all these were actually friction for users. And yes, you know, early users, people can understand that. People can understand that if they want to dig. You don't need to have you know, a PhD or be, you know, be a mathematician to understand all these concepts. But it takes some time. And if you really want to onboard a billion users, I think all these complexities need to be abstracted at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's true of, of every technology. I think a, a good technology is a technology you don't see, where, where all the friction points have been abstracted for you. And so using smart contract, again, we started working on, you know, get rid of seed phrase. That was number one. Then we started working on abstracting gas by doing what people know call metatransactions, which enable us to subsidize transactions for our users, which at some point seemed a pretty good idea. Then gas went crazy and it turned out to be a terrific <laughs> and a disastrous idea for us. Uh, but still, the, the, I mean, the will to actually abstract all that complexity and enable a seamless experience for users while being 100% non-custodial is really, you know, the, like, the driving factor for Arjun from day one. And it still is today. You just said that at some point in your solution for gas, gas going crazy hurt you. What was that original solution? What Were you just paying everybody's gas? Yes, yes. I mean, our idea was was kind of an analogy to, to browsing the web. When you go on a website, you typically don't pay for, you know, the Amazon server hosting mm -hmm. the website that you're interacting with. Actually, a website has a business model that covers for all these costs, but these costs are abstracted to the user. And so we felt that it should be the same on blockchain. And so it was natural for us to you know, subsidize gas cost with the idea that at some point we would have a business model on, on top of it, which would cover for it. It was also clear for us that the blockchain wouldn't scale if transactions were costing like one or two dollars you know, to make a transfer. If, if you want it to be a technology again for billions of users, transactions should not be more than five cents or 10 cents max. Mm -hmm. One or two dollars even sounds lovely, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so we, we knew that at that point it was still a bit expensive, but our assumption is that gas costs would go down and, and they had to go down. If they were not going down, then the blockchain would not scale. And so they had to go down. I still think that that's the case. What we didn't, I would say, factor into account is that between two points, it's not always a straight line. Yeah. And specifically in that case, it went crazy up. It will go down. But of course, we didn't anticipate that, that, you know, that crazy bump, which made, of course, all these transactions more and more expensive. And it started you know, costing us a lot. Uh, so we had to, of course, you know, face that and change our model a little bit. Uh, but anyway, that was at least the original idea four years ago. And actually, people loved it. When we were subsidizing transactions, of course, users loved it because Arjun was a non-custodial wallet, amazingly simple to use. No seed phrase, you know, no, no gas. You would just click on button and, and things would happen. I mean, that was the perfect experience. Uh, we still hope that we can you know, get back to that with layer two. 
And that's probably, you know, maybe a, something that we'll discuss later on, on, on this chat. Uh, but yes, be, between these, you know, between these two points, there was a huge bump and that forced us to revisit our, our model. Do you, so I think I, I definitely want to talk about the L2 stuff and kind of understand where you're even at with that, what that's, what that's changed for you. But I do think there's, there's a few things that you just brought up that are worth exploring deeper. Um, this idea of getting, I mean, just the getting rid of the seed phrase. I totally, like you, you'd sort of said, it's tricky. You know, we teach people not to write their password down. Now we get everyone to write their seed phrase down. And the problem is, is if you lose your seed phrase, you, you won't have access to your wallet and your funds and you're screwed and no one can help you. So it's understandable. But if anyone else gets access to your seed phrase, they have full access to everything and you can't stop them. You could only yes. be first. You could drain your own wallet earlier. That's like the best you can hope for. So it's it's such a different paradigm. Let's go deeper into sort of the solutions or like what exactly it means to get rid of a seed phrase on a wallet. Yeah. So, I, I mean, what you said is, is exactly how we describe, you know, what Arjun needs to do. You need to have safety nets, I think, because, yes, this idea, I mean, blockchain is intrinsically, you know, I would not say financial, but it's a way to transfer value. And so you need to have a way to, to protect that, that value. And building a system, as you said, where if you lose your one single secret, you've lost everything. And if I have your secret, I have everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane to imagine that this will work for, you know, for normal users and for a, a billion people. Uh, so the solution for us to get rid of the seed phrase is this thing that people call social recovery. Uh, I would not, I mean, certainly not claim that we invented it. I think there were people playing with this idea. There's, I mean, Gunn, Sierra, which is now building on Avalanche. I think he had a paper on blockchain with some of these ideas. Vitalik had mentioned it as well, mm -hmm. uh, but we kind of did our own spin of it. And the idea is to say that if you are a, your account is a smart contract, so you have one key that's the owner of that smart contract. It's like the remote control. And that's the key that you would put on your phone. So mm -hmm. your phone really acts as a remote control to your account. But you can also define some other keys on that contract that can only act in certain situations. So it's not like these keys, they can make a transaction or they can transfer token. They only have access. They can only call certain methods. And we design these methods to be related to security. And one such method is the possibility to actually replace the owner of the smart contract. So you have one key in your phone. And let's say you program three other keys that we call guardians. These guardians cannot do anything, but the only thing they can do is actually replace the key that's the owner on your phone. Why is that useful? Is because if you lose your phone, you've lost actually the key that was controlling your account. You can contact your guardian and you can say, hey, can you please, you know, I have a new phone. This is my, the, the new key that's on my phone. Can you please reprogram your account to make it the owner? And that's basically what people call social recovery. The problem of the term is that people anticipate that social mean friends, while actually from the contract's point of view, these guardians, they are just accounts. Mm -hmm. They're just addresses. So they can be another smart contract. They can be, uh, you know, any, basically any account on the blockchain. And so in the case of Arjun, the logic is, of course, a little bit more complex than what I've defined. These guardians need to act collectively. So a majority of guardians needs to vote to approve the transaction to replace the signer. And then there is a, a time period, a time delay of two days to make sure that they cannot initiate that you can still cancel the operation if you don't agree with it. Mm. So there's kind of a game between, you know, the number of, 
of legit guardians and, and, and the owner and, and so on to make sure that basically guardians cannot abuse the wallet. Mm. And, and today, after you know, more than four years and you know, securing hundreds of millions, I mean, we had more than $1 billion at some point, the recovery has never been abused. I mean, it's never been hacked, it's never been abused. So it is a very robust uh, protocol. And, and it's a great way to abstract the seed phrase because now the key that's on your phone is like a disposable. Yes, you want to keep it. Yes, you want to keep it secure because it's easier. But if something bad happens, there's actually a way to, to gain back access to your account. Hmm. It's not a multi-sig though, eh? Like when you talk about these like multiple users, is it like a multi-sig that controls a smart contract that then does the unlocking of another wallet in a way? Or It is a multi-sig. It's, uh, we call it a, a custom multi-sig. Typically, multi-sig are very generic. You need yeah. to have N of M of the signers that initiate the transaction. <clears throat> Here, we want to, again, bring the best of, of both worlds. So your wallet is a multi-sig for certain security operation, but for some other operation, the signer alone can, you know, can execute the action. So it, it, yeah, our journey is a, is a custom multi-sig. You're not also a multi-sig. Like you wouldn't have a multi-sig of the recovery for a multi-sig. Everything is in one contract. So really on, on your account, there's really these, these different keys that can be set up and they have different roles and they have access to, to different methods if you want. Hmm. So all these is programmed. So yeah, it's, it's a multi-sig, but it's a custom one. Yeah, okay. Uh, which I think is, again, the way we say is like, you know, be a multi-sig when you need, but, you know, not always. So sometimes you want to have these multi-sig functionalities. Someone you, sometimes you don't want because every time you make a transfer or you, you, know, you interact with the DAP, you don't necessarily need to contact all these guardians or all these mm. parties. So there are certain actions that are safe. And for that, you, you should be able to execute them in one, in just, just with the signer key that's on your phone. But for most, for other sensitive operation or security-related operation, you want your account to act as a multi-sig. Mm. I did actually have an interview not that long ago with the folks from Gnosis where we talked about the safe. I think we were talking about their governance, the Zodiac governance um, protocol framework. And I do wonder, like, in this model, like, could you use this model for some sort of governance or decision making? I realize it's primarily for, like, password recovery. Like, this multi-sig has the purpose of, like, if you lose your key, there are people to help you. But, like, have you explored using this this guardian model for something else? So the answer is yes, not for governance, but on Argen, actually the guardians, they have, they have several roles. One is the recovery. Another one is to approve, uh, I would say sensitive transaction. So again, because we have logic on the wallet, the owner itself can do any operation that doesn't exit value from the wallet. So, for example, when you do a trade, you can swap between one token to the other, but there's actually no value exiting the wallet. Mm -hmm. So we have actually all these filters and all that fraud monitoring logic on chain today, which makes sure that there are certain operations that can be triggered by the owner of the wallet alone, because we know that there's no value leaving the wallet. Now, if suddenly you want to make a, a large transfer to another account, then in this situation, because there's value leaving the wallet, you need to ask your guardians to co-sign that transaction. Again, and then to go to the, the full length of the model, you, as, a, as the owner of the wallet, you can also set a whitelist of addresses that you trust. So again, it's not like you will need to approve your transaction with your guardians for every single operation. Mm. You can say, I can say sending you know, money to Anna. I know Anna, I trust it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Because if someone 
hacks my wallet for some reason, they can only send funds to you, which is yeah. fine. They cannot send funds to their own wallet. Yeah. So you can also define whitelist and trusted contacts and so on. But again, these guardians, they can act for transactions that the wallet does not understand or doesn't know. And so it's, it's like a, a, a second factor in a sense. So if I want to you know, wire $50,000 to someone that I've never interacted with, the wallet will say, hey, this is a transaction that I don't know. Please, you know, approve with your guardians. Mm -hmm. And so your guardians, so they can act for, for recovery, but they can also act for fraud monitoring or co-validation of, of transactions. That's interesting. Is there any connection to hardware wallets? Can you just use a hardware wallet and Argent together? Yes. So actually, we have several large users, so users which have a lot of funds in, in Argent. And when I say it's more like, people that have a million or a couple of millions in Argent, they would tend to use hardware wallets as, as guardians. Ah. Because again, it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can use a hardware wallet as a guardian and you can actually put it in the safe in the bank. That's fine because you will never use it. You will only use it when something bad happens. You've lost yeah. your phone or, you know. And so you have kind of the best of both worlds. You have your hardware wallet, which is really, really secure and you can put it in like cold storage somewhere and you use that as a guardian to, to your Argent wallet which is then, you know, the, the wallet that you use to access dApps or to, to, to make investment and so on. Mm. So yes, we, we do support hardware wallets, but typically they're used as guardians. How do you see the evolution of hardware wallets? I mean, it sounds like they're a partner project, but like, I, like in the landscape of wallets that you're looking at, you don't see them as a competitor in any way, I guess. They do a different thing. They do a different thing. I think in a sense, there are competitors because they're considered like secure wallets. And yeah. Arjun, I mean, we, we put forward security. Arjun is extremely secure. And on that spectrum, in terms of extremely secure non-custodial wallet, people think hardware wallet. And we want them to think, you know, actually Arjun wallet is a better alternative. Uh, but yes, it, it's difficult to know where hardware wallets will go. I, I still believe that at some point, you know, everybody will have, uh, I mean, they will. your keys will be managed by, by your phone, by the hardware of your phone, and then your operating system on, on top of that. So I imagine that hardware wallet will become chips somehow that will be in different devices. But yes, I, I personally feel more confident to use Argent than hardware wallet, mm. to be honest, because the hardware wallet, you still need to have a seed phrase. So mm -hmm. actually you have that same problem of what do you do with your seed phrase? Yes, your hardware wallet is very secure, but where do you put that seed phrase? So I think that that's one problem. The second problem is that they are quite opaque. With a smart contract wallet, yes, smart contracts can have bugs, but actually the, the code is open source, so everybody can inspect it. Mm -hmm. And after four years, you know, if nobody has hacked it, you can have confidence that it's actually secure. With a hardware wallet, it's more complicated to know what exactly is happening inside, you know, inside your hardware. So, I mean, I think there's no there's no perfect solution. Every solution has its own trade-off. Uh, but yeah, personally, I... I feel more confident with my, my Argent wallet than the hardware wallet. Uh, but, but I think combining both, like using a hardware wallet, which is what I do as a guardian, is, is a great, you know, is actually getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, that's interesting. Is Argent built as a wallet that's meant to interact a lot with dApps outside of itself? Like, do you have like wallet connect, like connectivity to these dApps? Or do you have your own custom ones? Because I feel like sometimes I see Argent on a list directly <laughs> no so we are not we are not coinbase we didn't write our own version of, of wallet of connect them? okay we didn't write wallet link no no we, we we're big fan of wallet connect we've okay. been probably one of the first wallet to to integrate wallet connect uh we, we do believe that that's the right way to interact with dApps. so yes in, in argent we've inte we integrate natively some protocols to make it simpler so in our ui 
you have the possibility to connect to certain dApps, to do some investment, to swap token and so on. But of course, we enable you to connect to all the other dApps out there, and we do that through Wallet Connect. So that's great. The only, I would say, drawback of that approach, and again, that's related to a discussion we can have on layer two, is that today on Ethereum, people are building for EOS. They're not building for smart contract wallets. So smart contract wallet like Arjun or Nozisafe, they are second-class citizens in a sense. And so that means that there are certain actions, very specific ones, where that developers need to do something specific if they want to support EOAs and smart contract wallets. Mm. And one of the main one is the ability to verify an off-chain signature. Of typically, when you connect to a DApp, sometimes they will ask you to sign some message. Mm -hmm. And then they can use that signature. They do an EC recover locally, and they say, ah, okay, the private key from that, that sign is actually the same as, as the account that, you know, that connected. And that works because your account is an EOA. If you're a smart contract wallet, smart contract wallet cannot sign transactions. So actually, what you are doing is that you are signing with the key on your phone. Uh, but then to verify the signature, DAP should actually contact the wallet and say, hey, is this a legitimate signature? And, and there's an EIP for that that was actually developed by Pedro from Wallet Connect, Connect EIP 1271, which does exactly that. Uh, the problem is that not, not all DAPs have basically, are basically supporting that standard. Mm. And so if you use Arjun or actually Gnosis, uh, on, on certain DAPs, it will work. On some, it will not work because they do not support that, that EIP. And so there's an entire phase of education trying to convince that to, uh, you to know, to, to adapt, to do that. And, and that's, yeah, that's a, a problem for of smart contract wallet. Yeah. Is that you need to do something that's a little bit specific. It's not that it's not complicated. It's a one-liner, but you know the entire ecosystem is built around that ERA paradigm uh, in, in in their head, and, and so that's a consequence of that. Since a lot of this is open source, would you be able to just create the little bit of code that they need and submit it basically to their repo, and then see if they add it? Do you ever do that? Mm, no, we we don't do that. We prefer to reach out to the developers. Okay. I think it's 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 part of of education and, and and fortunately Arjun and Nozis are you know are two well-known brands and yeah. so we have some you know some leverage and some visibility and so when we explain them the problem dApps will typically update uh, but sometimes it's a bit more complex than that for example uh, OpenSea in there they were using actually off-chain signatures but they were verifying these signatures in their smart contract and so their smart contract with only verifying using an EC recover. So there are certain operations that smart contract wallet could not do on OpenSea. That has changed now, but of course you, you need to contact them and tell them not to, you know, to update their front end. They actually need to change one line on their smart contract, which take much more, you know, a, a longer time to do because it needs to be audited and so on. So today OpenSea fully supports smart contract wallets, which is great, but of course that took a little bit of time. So it's not always possible for us to just contact or just do a pull request with a change. That's what we did on their smart contract repo. I opened an issue, but you still need them to actually go through the process of, of updating the contracts. Mm. And, and actually that's one of the things that's why we are so so bullish and, and excited about what people call account abstraction, uh, which is a, a, a topic on, on its own. But but that's something that we are pushing on layer twos because with account abstraction, smart contract wallet becomes the, the default, the norm. And that means that all these problems will go away because every single account will be a smart contract. Hmm. And so that's why we believe account abstraction on layer twos is actually something that's very important for you know to grow the ecosystem and to actually 
enable easily to, 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 to remove all these frictions that we see on L1 with a kind of abstraction, you can make them much, much simpler to fix. There's two threads basically that I want to dive into in our conversation on L2s, and that's mm -hmm. kind of revisiting the gas and then understanding a bit more what this account abstraction really means. Yeah. Let's talk about your move over to an L2, like the first one. So I know ZK Sync was the first place you started to experiment with. Like just one thing, are you still paying the gas fees on the main? No, 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 no. We had, we had to stop that because we were losing a you lot of money. You had to stop money. that. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And actually, that, yeah, and that was a big frustration for us because we really wanted Argent to be a wallet for everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's the beauty of the blockchain is that everybody has the same access to this global permissionless financial system. But because the gas became really, really high, everything became really expensive. Smart contract wallets are even more expensive than EOAs because yeah. you have that logic that needs to be executed. And so we ended up being a wallet for whales, basically. Yeah, and so we actually had to adapt. Mm. Our, yeah, we had to adapt ourselves to that reality. Uh, so we had to shift a little bit the product. It's okay to pay fifty dollars to do a swap if you're swapping half a million. It's mm. not okay to pay fifty dollars if you're swapping a hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. So we became a product for users with really large number of assets, which, by the way, is great because it enabled us to prove our model and to prove the security of our approach because we have a lot of, you know users which are assets trusting us uh, and trusting Arjun with their funds. But of course, all these smaller users were left out. And so that's why we were like eagerly waiting for layer twos to pick up because for us, it's an opportunity to actually bring back our solution for these, these users. So let's talk about that. When did you first make the move and what are you actually doing? What can, what can you do there so far? So we've been monitoring the layer two space for quite some time mm -hmm. because of that very problem of, of transactions being you know, very expensive. And we ra rapidly identified that layer two would be our new home in a sense. That's where you know a, a smart contract wallet or wallets in general would be. I think gradually we'll see a shift from L1 to two layer twos because people would want to pay lower fees, of course. We looked at the field and monitored the field for quite some time and started discussing with the different partners. And there were, you know, Arbitrum and Optimism building optimistic rollup. And at that time, there was Starkware and Matter Labs building ZK rollups. Mm -hmm. So we discussed with, with all teams trying to understand, you know, where we should go first and, and where we should build the first version of our layer two offering. And... I mean, after many discussion and for different reasons, we decided to go for ZK Sync V1. I think as a higher level, we wanted to go for ZK Rollup because Which we believe good. that there are the long-term. <laughs> yes, we believe that there are there are the long-term solution. People always agreed that ZK Rollup would be the long-term solution, but they felt that it would be a really, really long-term solution, and that there would be a long period where optimistic Rollup would be the only solution. Discussing with Matter Labs and Starkware, we we had the, the impression that actually they would be ready much faster than people anticipated, mm. and so we decided to you know to to bet on zk rollup, uh, and so that was the question of of Starkware or Matter Labs. We of course discussed with both teams. At that point, Starkware, uh, which they are, I mean they are amazing engineer. I'm I'm now extremely bullish on on Starknet, and that's that's why we are building Argent X. But at that point, they on, they only had Stark X which was like very application-specific ZK rollup. Uh, and, and we are a wallet. I mean, we didn't really see the point of building something on our own application-specific ZK rollup because mm. in the end, we want users to interact with DAFs, with protocols, and so on. 
ZK Sync V1, which was already in production for I think something like a year, was again limited in functionalities because you could only do transfers basically, mm -hmm. and you could do native swaps. But we felt that this was sufficient for us to kind of build of an, I would say an MVP of, of what our layer two offering would be. If you look at Argent, even on L1, we have this, so we have that security layer, then we have integration of native protocols. So basically financial primitives, you know, you can, you know, interact, you can swap tokens, you can earn yields on your tokens and so on. So we have these things that are natively integrated. Then we let you connect to the, the entire world using Wallet Connect. We felt that on ZK Sync V1, we could build everything except the connection to the other world because there's no smart contract, so there's no application mm -hmm. being built on ZK Sync V1. Uh, but actually, we realized that we could do transfer and, and we could do native swaps. And actually, because we could do native swaps, we had the idea of doing something called DeFi pooling, which is bringing basically layer one DeFi protocols to layer two. And that's actually an idea that, that we pioneered uh, in the field. And that's the idea that if you have a lot of users on L2 that want to have access to a certain token on L1, you can kind of aggregate all these demands and then go on layer one, get, you know, swap the tokens on layer one and bring them back to layer two. Like so a bundling, you, save on gas. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So exactly. So you're paying the, the gas of one transaction, but you can do that for say a thousand, a hundred, or uh, you know, 5,000, 10,000 users, depending on how much liquidity is needed. And so we felt that tr through that technique, we could actually give access to, to many of the DeFi protocols on L1. We could do swapping and, and we could do transfers. So that was sufficient to build actually a, a compelling product on ZK Sync V1, which had, as I said, like 80% of what Argent X. We're still missing the connection to dApps, which is very important, but we felt that that would come with ZK Sync V2. And so that's why we, we started working on ZK Sync V1. I think we started that probably a year ago. Okay. Uh, and offering ZK Sync V1 has been live since January, December, January. I don't remember exactly, but it's been on for, for a few months. I haven't had them on in a while, but like ZK Sync V2, is that out already? No. So they are on Testnet. Okay. Uh, so they're working on that. I think they're a bit behind uh, their initial roadmap uh, mm. and plan for various reasons, but they are on testnet. They are missing one piece that is important for us, which is account abstraction, okay. as, as I've already mentioned. Uh, but no, they are, they are coming, they are building, and I believe that they will have a testnet with most of the functionalities in a couple of months, hopefully. I know, I mean, uh, on an episode we did a while ago, Brendan from Polygon had mentioned his time at the L2Beat event in Amsterdam and said something about a lot of these L2s having like changed their roadmap slightly. So this sounds like it falls a little in that category. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Push them back a bit. Made them more realistic somehow. Yeah, it, definitely. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think people are also realizing that L2 is an opportunity to actually fix some of the limitation of, of L1. Yeah. And so I think because these, the development of these platforms take time, I think people realize these, you know, these possibilities at different moments. And so they want to bring these, these unique features to L2. Mm -hmm. What do you call your version of your first L2 foray? Like the first thing you made with CK Sync, what is that called? We call it, I think, a flash account. So it's, it's Argent on, on, on ZK Sync. So in the same mobile app that you, we have today, you can basically have two types of accounts. So you can have an account on Ethereum, on layer one, and then you can have an account on ZK Sync. 
-hmm. which is zk sync v1 and on both of these accounts you can you know you can on ramp funds so we've integrated ramp mm -hmm. uh, on zk sync so you can from your credit card you can actually buy you know ether dai usdc and and some of the main currencies you can swap them and you can earn yield on this token through certain protocols so we've integrated yearn we've integrated uh, grow we've integrated a, a, a bunch of protocols which enables you to to earn yields of this token is that on the l2 yes that's on the l2 yeah cool did you have to have the team the yearn team do that with you or was that something you could just sort of redeploy no so we did that ourselves using this DeFi pooling technique so the idea of DeFi pooling as i said is that we ah, we actually okay. bring liquidity in in the end i mean any DeFi protocol is a token in the end. And that token, you know, packs and uh, bundles a lot of things, but in the end, there's always a token. Mm -hmm. So actually what we do is that we bring these tokens to L2, and then we, we let users swap for these tokens on L2. And when we detect that the liquidity is getting low, we've accumulated the, you know, the, the converse token for which users have, have used to buy these, these DeFi token. And so we bring this token back to L1 and we orchestrate all that. So we have smart contracts to do that. Mm. We bring the liquidity back to L1. We swap for more of these DeFi token. And sometimes with Yearn, it requires you know, multiple operations. So we have an infrastructure of smart contract to do that. And once we have the DeFi token again, we bring it back to L2 and we replenish replenish the, the pool with, with this token. So users can continuously buy uh, these DeFi token. We did collaborate with all these this protocol to provide the, the bootstrapping liquidity. So, if, for example, Euron provided some some liquidity to start that. Uh, that was the initial liquidity. We are uh, we integrated you know Lido to provide STE. So they also provided the initial you know STE token and so on. So mm -hmm. so we did collaborated with them for that liquidity. But actually, that's the beauty of of DeFi is that you don't need to ask permission. We we can just build smart contract and, and orchestrate that without them having to know. That's interesting. I always think of the applications on L2 as deployed on L2, but here you're saying like you can act as a user on the L2 side the same way you would on an L1 side, but in your case, like the wallet itself, it's being that like bridge to the L1 for you. That's what it sounds like. Yes. I mean, in the end, as, as, a, as a user, you want, to, you want to swap tokens. Yeah, yeah. Or engage in liquidity events yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. Of course, there's more, there's more complicated <laughs> use cases. But typically, if you want to have you know, yield on your token, you want to have STE. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter. We don't need to create all these contracts on L2. You, as long as you actually have a token representing STEs on L1, and you can, without anybody's help, you know, go back on the bridge and receive the equivalent STE on L1, that, mm -hmm. I mean... That's, you know, you, the wrap token is as good as the original token. And so you have access to that DeFi protocol, yeah. I, I'm trying to think if through Argent, there is ever going to be some sort of like staking action itself. I, I just The reason I think about this is some, for other networks, some other networks that have staking functionality, like proof of stake networks, often the wallets will have it in there. And I was just trying to think like where you're sitting, would you need to have that possibility I guess not yet for any of these L2s because they don't have necessarily native tokens yet. Mm, no, they don't. But again, you have access through staking to staking through some L1 protocol. Mm. So through Argent, you can you know you can lock your your ETH into Lido and receive STETH in exchange. So you yeah. are actually staking as, a, as an ETH2 validator. So we can give access to that again. We can abstract that complexity and give you access to the wrap token representing your state 
investment. Mm. Let's talk more about that account abstraction. You mentioned it a few times. What exactly does it mean? Why is that related to an L2? Yeah, so typically on Ethereum, accounts are EOS. And so there's a link between the signing object, your key, and actually the account, the object that holds your token on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And there's a direct connection between the two because the address of your account is derived from the public key of your signer. And actually only the private key on the signer can initiate transaction on that account. So mm -hmm. they're basically two sides of the same thing. Uh, and that's actually why a lot of that complexity and all these risks come from, because if there are two sides of the same thing, if you have one, you basically have the other. So if you have the signer, you automatically have the account. And, and that's the difficulty. And all and that coupling is really hard-coded in the EVM. So the idea of account abstraction is to basically break that coupling, to decouple the signing object, the object that's authorized to make transaction, from actually the account, the object that holds the token. And in practice, it, it, it means that accounts become smart contracts. Mm -hmm. So every time you deploy an account with account abstraction, that account is a smart contract, which can contain some custom logic. Of course, there's some constraint. It needs to comply to a certain interface. There's, there's some, you know, some constraint on, on, on certain methods. But the, the, the idea of account abstraction is that every account is a smart contract that can be customized by the user, provided that it satisfies some, some constraint. And why is that very interesting is because, as I was saying, every account becomes a smart contract wallet. That's the default. It's not enough to thought. It's not like you have EOAs and you have a smart contract wallet. No, with account abstraction, every account is a smart contract. Why do L2s allow for that more? Like you sort of you you sort of brought that up in the context of the move to an L2. So, but right now, I mean, L2s don't have very much functionality. So, <laughs> I'm not exactly clear how that would work. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, account abstraction is not a new idea. If you look mm -hmm. at, at Vitalik, I think Vitalik is proposing an EIP around account abstraction every year consistently for the past four or five years. Mm -hmm. So that's something that has always been on the roadmap for Ethereum. But of course, it's, it's, a, it's a complex change from what we have today. And there's so much at stake on Ethereum that it's, it's been too complicated to implement. And that's something that was always pushed back. Um, but, that, but that's something that was there from the start, right? It was always clear that we would need to move from EOA account to uh, account abstraction. But now if you think of that in the context of L2, L2s are starting from a blank page. I mean, we've learned a lot of things for the past five, you know, four, five, six years with Ethereum. And I think we should take the best and we should take that opportunity to fix some of the limitations or to actually try to innovate on some of the aspects that are becoming complicated to innovate on, on, on layer one. And so that's why account abstraction is kind of coming back in the context of layer two. And that's something that at Argent we've been pushing very hard. Uh, because we believe that that's the direction that every layer should go to. We believe that the you know all the VM should have account abstraction, layer one should have account abstraction. But let's start with layer twos, which are you know a blank page, and so yeah. it's easier for them to start with that concept uh, from you know natively integrated from from day one at the in the protocol. What does natively integrated mean though? Like, is it is it an EIP that would never pass on the main like on Ethereum mainnet? Like, what does it even mean, actually? What would that look like? So that means that the VM, like you have the, on the EVM, a lot of stuff that are hard-coded. Yeah, yeah. It means that the VM on this layer two actually is, is designed to work with account abstraction, you know, being there. Built so in. to give you a concrete example, we've been working really hard with Starkware 
on, on actually helping them this design like an abstraction. So we've collaborated with OpenZeppelin, Starkware and, and Argen to try to really push that and understand how it would work. So again, they were leading everything, not saying we had a big role, but having experience from smart contract wallet, we actually could give them a lot of feedback and say, you know, you should think about that. We should have one such method to validate signature. Or if you do that, you will prevent us from using having this, 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 that use case. So we've been working together for the past three or four months, trying to design how account abstraction would work on on StarkNet. And so that means that today on StarkNet, what we agreed for is that every account needs to satisfy an interface, which has three methods. One is to validate a transaction. So there's literally a validate method. One is to execute a transaction. And then one is to verify off-chain signatures. And to make a parallel with layer one, today on the EVM, there is actually a validation phase and an execution phase. When you broadcast a transaction, to a node before the node can put it in the mempool, it actually validates that the transaction will work and that miners will be able to collect fees at the end. And how they do that, they check the signature, they check the nouns, and they check that you have enough balance to pay the miners fees. So there's actually on the EVM, there is that validation phase, and then there is that execution phase where the transaction is you know, taken and all the interaction with all the contracts are, are being executed. So today on the EVM, we already have that logic, except that it's hard-coded. On Starkware, there's the same steps, except that instead of doing something that's hard-coded, the, the VM or the, the Cairo operating system actually calls the account and calls the method validate when it is to validate. When it wants to execute a transaction, it calls the execute method. So that's what I mean by being at the protocol. It's really at the level of, of the VM of the M2. Uh, the reason I was asking a little earlier, like what you call the ZK Sync Argent wallet, or what you, it sounds like it's Argent on ZK Sync, but you have Argent X, which is on StarkNet. At what stage is this account abstraction over there? And like, kind of what happens over on ZK Sync? Like, are you also looking to, to create the same kind of abstraction as well? So, yes, I mean, I'm talking about Starkware because they are a bit further than ZK Sing in terms of account abstraction, but ZK mm -hmm. Sing is also working on account abstraction and they are implementing, you know, it a similar way as, as Starkware is doing. So we are, again, helping ZK Sing the same way we try to help Starkware, but Starkware with Starknet is a little bit, you know, more advanced in, in that direction. And, and, and actually, that's why we started building Argent X because we were exploring all these ideas. And so we started to be involved into the StarkNet ecosystem. And we felt a bit like we felt at the beginning of our journey on L1, that there was a missing piece between the protocol and the application. We actually witnessed exactly the same on StarkNet. There were people very excited to build games or to build you know, like new types of application that were not possible before and that become possible on ZK Rollup. So they were all building these, these starting to build these cool applications. There was Starkware building the protocol, and then DAP developers were like, oh, but how can I connect my, you know, my DAP to, to the network? And again, there was a missing piece, but at that point, there was literally no wallet. So kind of the same way we fell on N1, we need to fill that gap, and we started with Arjun. We felt exactly the same on StarkNet. We said, okay, let's, let's actually build a wallet so that developers you know, can build, you know, can continue building their application, and so actually we can help that ecosystem grow. And that, that's the initial motivation behind Argent X. How is that funded? How do you decide to do something like that? Is it grants? Like, does Starkware sponsor you to do this in, in a way? Or do you see there being an income stream for you through this? 
Yeah, so so no, Starkware does not does not sponsor you. Uh, sponsor us, sorry. Uh, I mean, Argen is we you know we have we are a VC backed company, so we have funds, and we believe that you know it's strategically it makes sense for us. We've we've all, always believed in zk rollup. We believe it's the future, so we are you know we're developing on zk sync, but it, we always meant to be developing on on Starkware as well. And it's I mean we felt that you know it was a great opportunity for us to be actually the first you know wallet building there. So no no we we feel that again if we want we want to be the wallet of the of zk rollups. Oh cool! I think today <laughs> with Argent, that's what we want nice. to be. We want to be this, the wallet of zk rollups. And today the main two zk rollups are Starkware, are Starknet, and 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 zk sync. And so it makes sense for us to be building on on both of these platforms. Do you have to? When you are on the CK rollups, do you have to build within the native language some, something? Like, are you building smart contracts with Cairo? Yes. So on Starknet, yes, we need to write smart contracts in Cairo, which is a topic that people discuss a lot. You know, there's a lot of people that want to, you know, that want to have EVM, EVM equivalent. Compatibility. Right? Yeah, know, yeah. yeah, there's EVM compatibility and then there's EVM equivalent, which goes even, yeah. e- even further. The way we see things is that First of all, ZK Rollup are a completely new paradigm. And so Solidity, for example, was designed for the EVM, which is a con- constrained state machine. It's constrained in terms of compute and on the stuff that it can do. And so Solidity was, was designed for that environment. So we see no specific reason to use exactly the same language for an environment which has different set of constraints and, and not the same one. Might as well use a tool that is optimized for, for that environment. Uh, the counter argument is that you know all the developers know Solidity. Yes, all the developers in the blockchain know Solidity. But what's you know what does that represent in terms of the entire pool of developers in the world? I mean, we are so early that 99.9% of available developers are not in blockchain, and so for them, learning Cairo, learning Solidity, I mean, doesn't doesn't really matter. So so for all these reasons, we feel that Cairo. I think again, there's there's pros and cons. Of course, it's it's good to use Solidity because you have all the tooling. But again, Starkware, I think, is building Cairo for, for the you know right reasons. The, the challenge will be the tooling and infrastructure around. But again, they managed to attract such a group of excited and smart developers that actually people are filling the gap. Mm-hmm. And so all these tools that we use today to, to develop in Solidity, people are rapidly building them to develop in Cairo. It's, it's a new language. I mean, it will take time to mature like Solidity did. Uh, but again, we didn't see that as a blocker. I think it's a it's a great opportunity to again improve on you know what we have. We've learned a lot of things on L1. Why not improve with a with a different language? And so for all these reasons, we yeah, we feel at, at ease building in Cairo. Given that you do have sort of a lot of this developed on in Solidity, I guess, like on the on the main mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of EVM compatible chains that have come online. Appa, Moonbeam. Evmos just came out. Like yeah. all the ecosystems have a EVM compatible chain, often connected through bridges. Do you ever see yourself deploying there? And if you did, would you be the bridge, or would you have to work with a bridge? It's a good question. Uh, I would like to come with a clear statement, but that's something that we debate internally, <laughs> of course, uh, because there's a yeah. lot of activity happening in lots of different places in, in our ecosystem. But again. We've always been driven by our long-term goal, in a sense. And so we, at least we don't want to be influenced by short-term wins. We still believe in the Ethereum ecosystem, and we still believe that on that ecosystem, the long-term bet is on ZK Rollup. 
yes, there's a lot of activity happening today on other chains and in other locations, and sometimes by a really good team that you know that we know mm-hmm. well, we we appreciate and respect, but we want to be focused on our long-term vision. But of course, we are monitoring everything. We are talking to all the teams. I think we would have no problem building on an EVM equivalent chain, of course. One thing that we would want to see is account abstraction because we don't want just to repeat the same mistake that we've had on L1 and again, be a second-class citizen because it's a lot of effort. Uh, And so at Amsterdam, I had the chance to discuss with a lot of these teams. I mean, I discussed with Polygon team. I discussed with... With a team from ZK Armies, Maiden, we discussed, yeah, with Optimism Arbitrum, they are all interested in account abstraction. They all want account abstraction to, to come, but because those that want to be EVM equivalent, they're kind of waiting for the EVM to change first before running, yeah. it, running it themselves. Uh, and so, you know, we would like to convince to do things the other way around. I think, again, Layer 2 is a great, is a great opportunity to to fix some, I would not say fix, but to improve on some of these things. And it's a good opportunity to actually innovate and to test stuff. Uh, So we would love, I mean, we would be happy to explore going on another chain if they were to support account abstraction. But for us, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, our our focus and our belief is is in ZK Rollup. But of course, for example, I believe optimistic Rollup will become ZK Rollup at some point. That's my new new conclusion following you. I was in Amsterdam and listening to, I think, Polygon Hermes and then Optimism in a row. And it was kind of, it's exactly the same architecture. So I think at some point, Optimistic Rollup will become ZK Rollup. So it would make sense to start building on them today because we know that it will go towards what we believe is the long-term goal. But again, account abstraction for us is something that, that's very important because if you don't have that, you're forced to, to add a lot of complexity to have meta transactions, relayers and you're a second-class citizen. Uh, so yeah, for, for the moment, that's where we've, we've drawn the line, I would say. But again, that's something that we are discussing internally a lot, of course. I kind of want to take the question I just asked and talk about the second part of it, which is, like, theoretically, if you were to deploy on a non-Ethereum-based chain, would you, as a wallet, end up interacting with the bridge somehow? Like, it's, it, this is more just like, like, what is a wallet in a bridged if it's EVM to EVM or EVM to something else, but it's just like, have you talked to any of the bridging teams, basically? Like, would you need to work with them on some level? So yes, definitely. And we are talking to some of the people providing bridges. I think the way we see things is that users don't care about chains and they don't want to see a chain. So again, if you look, you know, medium to long term, I think chains should be abstracted. There's no user in the same mind that would say, oh, I want to toggle something and go, you know, I want to go on, on Avalanche. You know, I, would, I want to go that toggle and go on Ethereum. No, actually, uh, it'll be users, application. Exactly. Users it come lives. for an application. <laughs> they want to they have access to an application. They want to have coins. It doesn't matter if these coins are on the chain one, chain B, or chain C. And so all this will need to be abstracted by wallet, definitely. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what we believe. And so, yes, you will need bridges to do that. But again, at this point, we don't want us to build these bridges. Okay. We believe that it's it's a separate business. And we see Arjun, I think the wallet is kind of an aggregator of protocol. And so, yes, we want to integrate bridges to do that, to provide that layer of abstraction. But yes, we don't, at, at least at this point, we don't think that we should build these bridges. Got it. Is the long-term plan of Argent to also have like a decentralizing force? Like right now you're an org, right? It's like you're building a product, you ship it, I'm assuming it's open source and people yeah. can look at it. And I think you did say that earlier. So, but 
Do you as an organization see yourselves as also, I mean, I think the, the question wrapped in here very overtly is like, are you eventually going to have a token too? Maybe you can't say that, but <laughs> when token is the, the question. I know I can't wait to ask that. that. You didn't expect it on the zero knowledge podcast. What have I become? No. Oh uh, God. <laughs> the answer is no. We are not bringing a token, uh, at least okay. not in the foreseeable future. We are not against a token. I think there's, but but it needs to come for a good reason and for the right reason. And today we don't see any any good reason to do that. Again, that's something that we are thinking of because in the long term we would love to give you know if you become a wallet for an ecosystem and to give that you know that product to the ecosystem itself so yes in terms of long-term vision that's a fantastic you know idea and something that we would you know that we would love to do at some point but it's it's not a topic that we need to discuss now i think this is we are probably mm -hmm. five years too early for that but so no, yeah, we, we we are not planning to launch a token at any point in the future. Uh, but again, it's not it's not for philosophical reason, right? It's because we don't see any good reason to do so as a wallet. Do you see? I mean, I'm wondering if this is this is a question more about like product development and like just the process of doing that. Do you almost feel like at this point it would not make sense for an org like yours to be governed like? You know what happens sometimes with this with the governance stuff is that it'll be like an upgrade to the wallet, a change in the way you do yeah. something would have to be decided by committee and by voting and yeah, yeah. We we've played with with these ideas, of course, because they are sexy yeah. on paper. I think again, DAOs are and, and governance is an amazing use case of the blockchain, but I do feel that we are not there yet at all. And I haven't seen for me a, a project with the right you know, with governance working well over a long period of time, there are some some interesting you know uh, direction and 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 experiment. But I do feel that in most of the situation, DAOs are actually an inefficient way to to build a product, and it's a way to, it's still as centralized as a traditional organization, except that you give it a layer of, you know. You give the impression that it's owned by the users, but in the end, there's two or three people that own the majority of the tokens and they decide, which is no different than a normal organization as, as we are today. And most people don't care enough to pay attention to everything anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a fascinating thing. I think there are some, I mean, you know, MakerDAO seems to be working relatively well. I like the way ENS is, you know, as, as introduced their token. So I think there's a lot of interesting direction. I think Optimism as a is working as as, a, as announced their token as well. So I think there it, it's interesting, but it's it's too soon for us, and it would be a distraction to start thinking about that. I think we first Got need it. to build up, you know, a great product for users, and then we can think about these 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 possibilities. But we are we are not there yet. I have one last question I want to ask you, which is: you were a physicist previously, quantum physics. Was that what you had said? Was your that was your space? Yeah. Um, do you actually look at you're now you know working with zero knowledge rollups? So you're I guess following zk stuff. Like because of what you studied, do you have any opinions actually about what happens to zk and also just blockchain tech with quantum computing? To be honest, not really. Uh, I don't want to use my my label as a quantum expert to give an opinion on that. <laughs> No, 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 not really. First of all, it's been a long time. I'm, I'm not that young anymore. So I haven't been active in quantum information and quantum computation for, for a long time. Funnily enough, the first time I heard zero knowledge proof was when I was still at university working on a postdoc because one of the 
first almost exciting areas of quantum information, quantum computation is actually cryptography. Mm -hmm. And so people were trying to see how you can improve some of the primitives or reproduce some of the cryptographic primitives using quantum system. And so that was the early days of, of zero knowledge proof. And I remember some, some people you know, talking about that. Uh, that was, I don't want to say 20 years ago, but probably 15 years ago <laughs> wow. already. So quite some time ago. Now, now in terms of, of you know the impact it will have on the blockchain and on, I'm not really monitoring that yet. It is clear that some cryptographic primitives are not quantum secure. That, that's mm -hmm. for sure. And so at some point we need, we need to move away from those. Uh, but no, that's not something that I specifically monitoring. I mean, so it does sound like the field was adjacent to, but not in cryptography. But do you have interest in cryptography? Like, did you ever look into that yourself? Uh, a, a little bit. As, as I mentioned, first of all, because working on quantum computation and, and quantum information, we looked at, at primitives. And so mm -hmm. uh, some of these primitives are, are cryptographic. So I did start, you know, I started being aware of that and starting researching and understanding a bit more how cryptography worked. And then after that, I, I did that startup where we build a quantum random number generator. Which would be relevant, yeah. Exactly, okay. for cryptography. And that's probably one of the reasons why we, it was not a great success is that typically as a, as a researcher, and as an academic, you have a solution and then you start looking for a problem. One yeah. startup should be the other way around. So that's exactly what we did. <laughs> we had a quantum random number generator generating four gigabits of random numbers per second. And we started thinking, okay, what can we do with that? And so, of course, you know, security and, 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 and cryptography was a natural fit. And so, we, you know, we researched and started working on that. So, again, I, that got me into cryptography, but I'm by no means an expert. I'm, I'm more interested on, of the, at the application level or to combine the building blocks than actually understanding why the, build, you know, the bricks work from a mathematical point of view. Cool. Well, thanks for that little background. I figured I'd have I'd have to ask you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks so much, Julian, for sharing with us Argent and its kind of history and some of its plans. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. Enjoyed the chat a lot. Very cool. I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Tanya, the podcast editor, Henrik, Chris, who helped on research, and to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.